Hey guys, it's Gabby. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to share some really exciting news with you. We're launching the Corporate Quitter Club. Not only will this community connect you with people just like you who want to build a business or explore side hustles, but you'll get the opportunity to attend live webinars, learn from experts and entrepreneurs who've quote unquote made it, and get exclusive access to masterclasses, workbooks, materials, and Corporate Quitter merchandise. So the question is, are you ready to make 2021 the last year you clock into your nine to five? Visit corporatequitter.com forward slash community to get on the wait list. Hope to see you there. You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. everyone and welcome to the Corporate Quitter Podcast. My name is Gabby Ionello. I'm your host. And today's guest I'm very excited about. His name is Jay Razuk. He's a California business attorney with over 10 years experience litigating across 20 states in matters involving legal compliance at Fortune 500 companies. He is also an adjunct professor at La Sierra University and the founder of ProScale Legal Coaching and the Secure Scale Method. Jay now helps small business owners employ legal strategies to securely scale their business beyond seven figures. And for me, legal is terrifying. As a small business that's starting up, I know a lot of listeners and myself would really benefit from basically gaining knowledge from you. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Gabby. And it's just a thrill. I just have to say, like, I love the intro on your podcast. I love the name Corporate Quitter. And I'm, it, the content's great. So I'm just thrilled to be a part of this. Thanks. I appreciate it. Long time coming. (laughs) Every step of the way, I appreciate the feedback. I know we talked and I know your story, but can you kind of explain to the listeners like what your background is and how you went from being this person to help Fortune 500 companies to now being the person to help the little people kind of get get a jump start, basically being a legal coach? Well, it goes back to right after law school. I went to a law firm in San Diego and For about 10 years, I was doing what's called shareholder derivative litigation. And that's just a fancy word for we were suing the officers and directors of these Fortune 500 companies to try to hold them accountable for gross mismanagement. They're supposed to watch over the company and make sure it doesn't break the laws. And these companies were experiencing huge, huge mistakes that were costing people's lives. Millions, billions of dollars were being lost. I was coming in as an attorney for the shareholders saying, hey, can we fix this company? Can we make sure this doesn't happen again? And unfortunately, in this process, I realized, one, the cost of making legal mistakes can be really, really, really big. And second, I learned just the process of fixing these after the fact is also extremely expensive. You have all these attorneys that have to get involved. Meanwhile, we're almost more focused on proving who's responsible rather than fixing the underlying issue. It was so hard as an outsider. It was so hard to try to bring about change that I really just decided one day, I've had enough of this and I want to work with smaller businesses and help them upfront employ the right strategies, the right methods. And as they grow, become one of those businesses that avoids those huge billion dollar mistakes. So I started about doing that and I'm still experiencing about 50% of the time people coming to me to help them after they've already made that mistake. And it's so challenging as an attorney to try to figure out a way to unwind it without getting them in bigger trouble. So I really like the prevention end of it. And I think a major 
reason why people aren't using attorneys early on is one, we're scary, two, we're inaccessible, unaffordable, but also just the modern legal system, the legal industry is made to either have you do it yourself. And then on the other end is, you know, you pay attorney to do something, you pay him a ton of money, he turns around and hands you something, and then boom, that's the end of the relationship. I see this huge need in between for a legal coach, someone that you feel comfortable going to, who upfront points you in the right direction, who encourages you, motivates you to start doing what you need to legally to protect your business as it's growing. Yeah. Like I had told you before, like I even went to the extent of looking for an attorney to help with trademarking and stuff early on. And I felt the same thing. I like paid her all this money to do these trademark searches. And she kind of came back with like, I don't feel comfortable submitting this on your behalf because X, Y, and Z reason. And she didn't really give me an option to like do something else, which frustrates me because here I am trying to start a relationship with someone who I thought I could trust and someone I could rely on to lead the way because I don't know anything about legal. I'm sure I'm not the only one who experiences things like that and frustration. So really glad that you know you're doing this because people need it. And it's it's definitely taken a bunch of rewiring of my brain. I'm used to thinking of the attorney where I know all the bad things are happening, and I would think my job was done because I told my client don't do something. But people really want a coach who's going to show you this is how you can do the right thing. Here's how you can move forward. So it's taking me to change, and the legal profession really needs to change. Yeah. But I do love how you're bringing more of a personalized spin on it versus just like filling out templates or like, because that's what a lot of people do is they just give you a template and you're like, well, I don't really understand it. And that's hard. <laughs> like, it's hard for me because I don't know the point of even doing this in the first place. Yeah. And I hope we'll, we'll talk about templates. There's definitely a big role for it, but you're right. You hand a person a template, they don't know what to do with it. And that's a problem with LegalZoom and some of these other do-it-yourself services. It's great what they've done to bring access to these documents. But I've seen people who've paid for like the full suite from LegalZoom to set up their business. They get all the documents and they never bother to then fill out all of them. So they've only like halfway formed their corporation. And if something went wrong and they got sued, it could come out that, yeah, they might not even technically have a corporation yet, or they might technically not be the shareholder. I actually know someone personally who did the legal Zoom route, and she said it was the most stressful thing and she would never do it again. Like She'd rather pay someone, like an actual attorney that she knows and has a relationship with, to do it, even if it costs more, to know that it was done correctly. Wow. Yeah, I was just going to ask, what was the stressful thing to her? But it, it was just the, the uncertainty of not knowing things were done right. Yeah, basically. Like she was presented a lot by LegalZoom, kind of templates, bit of like education, but it was more of like they gave so many scenarios of like, oh, you could be an LLC, but you can be an S Corp. And it's kind of like she felt that it was more overwhelming than helpful. So she ended up Googling a ton. I think she ended up submitting it, but not until she had someone else review it too. So it was like you kind of did two things instead of one and doing it right the first time. Yeah, see that that is a great example of where legal zoom comes up a little short. Their underlying documents are great. I look at them, I think they're they're very elegant, very simplified, as simplified as it can get. But yeah, they can't tell you at the end of the day, this is the right document for you. This is a direction you should go. And yeah, picking between a corporation or an LLC is a big decision point. And then from there, how do you want to be taxed? You want to be taxed just as an individual where you know your business entity is wholly ignored, which by default, that's how an LLC is. Or do you want to be taxed like an S-corp where still you're going to ignore the business, but you want to pay yourself like an employee and you could get W-2 income, 
which that could be a lot of benefits from that. If you ever try to apply for a loan, have you tried to do that yet? Not yet. I'm still thinking about doing like just grants to get more funding for business or maybe eventually a personal business loan, but not not yet. <laughs> I'm scared. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like right now, like even if you try to, if you have a mortgage and you want to refinance, they want to ask, so what's your W2 income? When you say, I don't have any, I'm self employed. You're like, oh, okay. Well, we're going to have to know every single thing about your business. We're going to need to help its cash flows. We need to know, you know, what you made in the past few months. It's so much more headache. A lot of people take for granted almost the easiness you have when you're an employee. Because when you're an employee, like everything is just done for you. Your employee pulls out your taxes. They pay half of your self-employment taxes. You get unemployment, disability, workman's comp, all this stuff. And the moment you go out and form your own business, all that dries up. And now you're responsible for everything. And now you don't have the W-2 income. But going back to the S-Corp, if you do have an S-Corp, you can pay yourself W-2 and, and get a lot of the benefits from that. I'm glad you touched on that. Can you kind of get into the legal considerations people should think about when transitioning out of corporate? Because I know now, especially with the trends of people leaving the job force, the nine to five situation with them returning to the office, they're like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. I'd rather quit. A lot of people want to start their own business or do something that's more quote unquote passion or like fulfilling. What are some things that we need to consider when we do that exit? I know that's a huge question, but (laughs) I'm sure there's a plenty of scenarios. I mean, I, I think legally, there's not so much there in terms of transitioning. Just realize now you're going to be on your own. I, I think maybe that's the biggest change. And that's what really struck me when I left from my big firm job to being by myself. Like, wow, now I have to figure out how to pay my own taxes. Now you have to guess upfront how much you're going to make and then pay the IRS like... You know, a year ahead, what you think you're going to make, and you have absolutely no idea because you just started your business. You know, and it just keeps going from there. And you know, like with COVID last year, there was all this relief for people who were ready paying themselves, who you know already had employees. But when you're just starting off again, the government's not really there for you, even though small businesses are one of the biggest drivers of innovation, of hiring. They're so important to the economy. We almost get treated like second-class citizens. We get taken for granted. So you're really very much on your own. And here in California, the government is almost against you as a gig worker because we've almost gotten rid of the possibility of someone being an independent contractor. So if someone's going to hire you, even though you might want to be a gig worker, you want to do it for a day, that person is taking on the risk that you'll be determined to be an employee. And then they have to pay you the workman's comp. They have to pay you the stability. They have to pay all these other things. So when you're starting off, I think what's important to think about too then is maybe you want to form an actual business entity as soon as possible, like an LLC or a corporation. It's probably more important than ever to have one of those. And there's nothing wrong being a sole proprietor, you know, person where you're just doing business as yourself. But unless you're in certain industries like law, most people hiring you will be considered to be an employer and you might miss out on a lot of business that way. I'm glad that you touched on the whole issue of like gig work, that whole type of employing situation. Like I know there was a huge issue with Uber and people striking because basically that's they're considered gig workers or independent contractors. Now California was like, that doesn't exist and Uber doesn't want to pay them as employees. So like, how does that tie in with this whole 
multi-state issue of remote working, because I know there are people who like literally have a job in Manhattan, but they've now relocated to Florida, South Carolina, Texas, like all these states, which obviously have different income brackets or different types of legal things, taxes. Like, can you kind of dive into what's going on with that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And and do you want to approach it from the employer who just had a small business whose employees just moved, or if you are the person who moved? I think if you're the person who moved, yeah, still under the employer's watch, you're still under pay by you know X corporation. What could you do or consider? Well, if your employer actually let you move, awesome for you, and hopefully you've ended up in a state that taxes you less. I think a lot of people fleeing are people from California, from New York, from Illinois, fleeing the higher taxation and going to Florida, Texas, these states that have zero income tax. For us in California, we could get taxed up to 13%. So if you take what you're paying in the federal government and you take what you're paying at the state, I mean, right there is like half your income, 50%. You know, sudden boost to your income just by moving. And these states are also probably going to be cheaper, right? Your housing is cheaper, your food is cheaper, your gas is cheaper. I mean, it's one of those things where I just wake up every day and while I love the weather in California and I love the people in California, I love our beaches. It's one of these things where is it worth the price? Because we're really paying so much to be there. That's how I felt about New York. It's rough. (laughs) It's so like uh, to get like the square studio that's like so tiny with like roaches and it's like $2,000. And you're like, if I go to Florida, I get the beach and like I get all my money. What? Like, why would I stay here? Exactly. I'll be happy to join you in Florida. That's definitely where I'm. I considered our sister to California. Yeah. I mean, to me, I think that's the biggest impact. And same thing with the business. Like when picking between to be an S corporation or just a plain LLC, the main decision-making process really is going to be taxes. It's your number one driver. And really, before you pick a business, you should talk to an accountant who can crunch some numbers for you and say, yeah, right now, this, this is what makes sense for you. It's also not a one-and-done decision. A lot of people think, oh, I picked it. I have an LLC. I'm stuck with that for life. No, you need to come back and reevaluate that because your situation could change. Just like, yeah, if you move to another state, you might want to change. So like in California, it doesn't really make a big difference if you're a corporation or an LLC. But if you move to Florida, you're you're tax-free if you're an LLC. But Florida actually taxes C corporations. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Good to know. <laughs> you definitely need to dig into the nuances of each state's laws when you move because it could be vastly different potentially. So with people who move, do they consult with a specific attorney in that state? Or does it matter where they're located? It at least has to be an attorney licensed to practice in that state. And in most cases, it will be someone who lives in that state. There's certain states where a lot of people have licenses in a lot of the neighboring states. Idaho and Washington, for example, you might have a lot of overlap there. But definitely find a local attorney that can advise you on those local laws. And that really makes the big difference. And yeah, when we talk about templates, a lot of people go download templates Those are made to be generic that can apply in multiple states, but you really need to have that local attorney now look over your template again. You know, maybe it was good when you're in Pennsylvania, but now you need to have it looked over for when you're in Florida, you know, or if you move from California to New York, whatever, you need to have it reviewed for those new local laws. 
I mean, would you recommend then, because like I use the template for my website just to make sure I had everything covered because I also know like California is huge when it comes to like the cookie policy, like all those things for websites, disclaimers. So I was just like, okay, I need to get something on there just to like cover myself for right now, knowing that later on, I'm going to have to find something that's better. Would you recommend that? Or you would say right in the beginning, people need to get something that's very specific. So when it comes to disclaimers and things for the internet, for the most part, especially like privacy policies, those are mostly going to be governed by federal law. And then you have states like you mentioned, California, who have really tried to push further the envelope. And then Nevada has put out their own rule. For the most part, it's pretty standardized across the board. So if you do what you need to to follow Nevada and California's rule. I believe in most states, then you're going to be fine there too. So you look for who's the strictest, California, adhere to that, then you're going to be largely safe. So that's one of the few times actually where a template might get a bit more mileage than your typical agreement. But this is ever-changing. States are constantly putting out new rules. So even what I'm saying today could be completely wrong tomorrow. And I haven't even mentioned yet the GDPR, which is the privacy rule in the UK. In yeah. I remember I worked for a tech company and they were based out of the UK and they did, they actually worked with law firms. So I worked with like the AmLaw like 200 and like we were doing all of their basically marketing and their email campaigns. And it was a huge deal when I was there in 2017 about making sure that they cover their asses for GDPR because people were getting fined left and right. Yeah. The, the fines are huge. And the scary thing is Europe has taken a position that in theory, they can enforce it against anybody anywhere. If you're serving Europeans, then they will claim the right to be able to fine you for not complying with their rules. So I always tell my clients or ask them, do you really need to serve Europeans? And fortunately, usually it's no. So I say, okay, good. Just say your website's not for them and don't serve them. That'll be the cheapest way to deal with that issue. Good old GDPR. I mean, I know it's for the greater good of like making sure people don't have privacy issues, right? Things are protected. Like it's all for the greater good, but man, is it a pain in the ass? <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, the basic ideas are good. And, you know, when technology gets to the point that just every website comes automatically with the things you need for GDPR compliance, it's not a big deal. And I think we're getting there. You know, maybe Squarespace and all these services now just automatically give you a GDPR compliant service. But it's it's one of those things where the bigger firms have to pioneer it first, build the technology for it. And then those of us just starting our businesses, hopefully we'll get trickle down technologies that can allow us to do that too. Yeah. So now that we're on the topic of risk in general with like compliance and disclaimers and stuff, can you talk about what are the five business risks you educate your clients on? Because I know that there's like a ton, but I know you specialize in like these specific ones. So yeah, I always hear all the time from people that they just don't know what they don't know. And navigating the legality is kind of like walking in this dark, dark forest, you know, where it's nighttime and you can only see like 10 feet in front of you and you hear the wolves howling. And so my goal with this was try to say, okay, let me show you what this forest looks like. Let me show you what the legal universe is. And I boil it down to five legal risks. Those are regulatory risk, tax risk, contractual risk, general liability risk, and competition risk. And I can come back and touch on all of those, but you have these five. So regulatory risk is what you got to do or the government will come for you. Joy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think this is the one a lot of us are really scared of. 
you know, we have what's out there. Um, usually it's, for example, you need to give certain disclosures if you're in certain industries or if you're a licensed professional, you have to follow a code of conduct. You need to do certain things. Most of it boils down to four concepts. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill. And we unfortunately have thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of rules just giving us variations on those four. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill. But if you have that mindset of, okay, I'm going to be a good, honest person. I'm going to be careful, make sure I don't hurt anybody. You know, I'm going to be upright, not going to cheat. You're ready where the law wants to bring you to be. And then now you just have to learn certain nuances where, again, like you might be required to actually affirmatively disclose something if your industry is required to do that. So the second one is taxation risk. And this one is a very, very relevant risk that, as I mentioned, right, when you're picking what legal entity you want to be, taxation should be number one because you are going to get taxed when you make money. This is where a lot of starting off businesses can make huge mistakes. They don't understand that when you're starting off your job, you have to prepay to the IRS what you think you're going to earn. And then they make a ton of money and then bam, get slapped with a giant penalty for late payment. Or they start off as an LLC, a regular LLC, and then end up having to pay a lot more taxes than they would have needed to if they were an S-Corp. Taxation also... We talked about a little bit, right? The multi-state issue where if you are moving to other states or doing business in other states, they also might want to start taxing you if you pass certain thresholds. So there's different ways taxation comes into play. And it's a major cost. And states like California are very aggressive to make sure they get paid what they're owed. So real risk. The third risk, contractual risk. So this is a risk that you might violate a contract you're in or someone you contracted with is going to breach that contract. Basically, that's people not fulfilling promises. When you have done a lot of service and then that person doesn't pay you, that hurts. But flip side too, your greatest risk as a small business is being sued for breach of contract. The Small Business Association did a study a few years back and found that over one-third of all lawsuits involving small businesses involve breach of contract. Wow. So that was your largest number one risk of being hauled into court was breach of contract. So this, again, is a very important one to keep in mind. So when you're entering contracts, you need to have an understanding of the terms, understanding what you're promising, maybe even go beyond and try to understand what the other person is expecting and try to make sure all of you are on the same page. And a good contract should bring you to the same page and give you processes to work out those problems, to resolve your dispute. And that is so overlooked. So many people just want to put into the contract, oh, I'm going to do X and you're going to do Y. And they don't want to spend the time thinking of, well, what happens when something goes wrong? And that's what I really love working on in the contract is all the what ifs to make sure that, again, when something happens, you have a plan because it's there in the contract. And the contract can now become your friend for preserving the relationship. So the next risk would be competition risk. So this is the risk that someone will come and compete with you. But that's usually the, the biggest aspect of it. That's not fun, right? Nobody loves like all this competition. Sometimes it could be healthy, but your best way to protect yourself from competitors is going to be intellectual property. We're talking about now using your trademarks, your patents, your copyrights, trade secrets, these sort of things to protect yourself from someone just being able to just compete with you. There's strategies and those strategies are backed with legal protection. 
the strategies being intellectual property. And then last and finally is just general liability risk. For example, you know, if you own a facility, someone slipping and falling, getting hurt, they would sue you. A lot of these are, are going to be covered with insurance. That's what's nice about that category. So you don't have to live too much fear if you just have the right policies in place. Now, I got a question for you. I don't feel like you have to answer, but my wife asked me this after I told her about these five risks. And she asked, well, where is employment in all of this? Or just, yeah, the risks that involve employees, where would you find that amongst these five risks? Of the five categories, honestly, I'm pretty stumped on that. I would say, is that contractual? Because you have a contract with them or no? It would be contractual. But actually, it's fascinating to me that employment risk actually covers all five of these risks. There's a ton of regulations about treatment of employees, disclosures, on and on and on, uh, like no discrimination, all sorts of anti-discrimination laws, equal pay laws. I mean, you go down the list. As you mentioned, contractual, it's very much contractual in nature. So there's a certain amount of freedom of defining what that employment relationship will look like. When it comes to tax, there's all sorts of tax issues. As I've been mentioning, you have to make sure you pay taxes for your employee and you have to withhold some amount for them. A lot of tax implications. You got intellectual property. You want to protect that. Remember, your employees just running off with it. You don't want them to take your customer list. That very much comes into play. And then you got to make sure you keep a safe workplace so that they're not getting hurt and suing you for getting injured. Likewise, you got to make sure they're not going to injure other people. If your employee is on the job and hurt someone else, you're responsible for it. It's fascinating to me how it just spans all five. Yeah. But I mean, now that you explain it, it does make sense. But I have to say, it's also extremely overwhelming. Like, you know, especially as someone who's just started this, I'm like, Hearing all that, like it almost puts me in a panic of like, oh my God, I have so much to do. Well, hopefully, maybe we should move on to then what are the the five things you could do to deal with these risks. And these tips, I hope, can bullet down to simple approaches that you could even take today to reduce the risk. I've uh, boiled them down to an acronym that spells scale. The S will be the right structures. The C is the right community. A is the right actions. L is loss and liability limiters, basically insurance. And E is enlightened thinking. Now, if you employ all five of these, you should have yourself fairly well covered. This, in fact, is consistent with even a lot of these Fortune 500 companies that I used to try to help. They employ some of these strategies. This is what CEOs are doing. This is how they sleep well at night. So the first one being the right structures, This is where you want to make sure you have a corporation or an LLC, something that's going to be right for you. You have it properly formed. Maybe it's going to be, you know, having the right intellectual property in place. This is going to take a certain level of legal advice, someone to guide you through and make sure you're you're on the right path there. But the payoff is huge to have these in place. The next community. This is an easy one to implement right now for anybody. And this is just making sure you are hiring the right people, your clients are the right clients, that your vendors are the right clients. You could have the best contract in the world, but if you're not with the right people, it could still go wrong. Your deal is bad the moment you entered in with the wrong person. It's really worth vetting people, really getting to understand who they are, what they're like. That's going to make things so much easier for you. Just developing that, nurturing that relationship. 
And of course, having an attorney as part of that community, someone who is going to be your friend that understands you and your business, I think can really make it easier too. Because now something comes up, you just call them. You're not going to have that waffling of, should I even do something about it? The third category, the actions. What did you think when you were an employee about all those rules and regulations and policies that your business had? Um, I hated them. I <laughs> really, I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I know they were there to protect me in the business, but sometimes it was frustrating because I felt like they were lacking, right? It's in their nature to protect the business before the employee. But I felt like sometimes it got mixed up where they were like overly protecting the business and it was actually hurting the employees. That's what often happens. So those policies, having policies are so important to make sure that the business acting through its employees is doing what's right. We need that as businesses. When you're growing your business, it goes from you to then having other people working with you and you need to standardize things. But yeah, unfortunately, people eventually get to the point where the policy exists for the policy and people exist for the policy and we forget the role that it has and don't let humans be humans. So I I think there's definitely still a lot of room for us as a society to learn better policies, but that is a foundational part still of being able to securely grow your business. Yeah. Especially at these huge Fortune 500 companies, you have one asshole who can mess the whole thing up if you don't have things in place. Exactly. You know, what do you do with that guy? How do you deal with them? There's so many businesses that, well, if there's a complaint filed against that guy, they will move the person who complained away from him, but they won't deal with that guy. You know, and right there, you've just violated a law, perhaps. You need to move that guy, you need to deal with him, and you need to create a safe environment for everybody. And you need to have a policy in place that tells you how you deal with you deal with them. It's it's so important. The next one is liability and loss limiters. Well, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Three L's, all basically saying get insurance that can cover the bad things that can happen to you. That really can can give you a lot of good coverage. Not only would it help you in settling, but it also give you money to hire an attorney who would then represent you in a case, hopefully try to settle the case. Uh, that's usually the goal there. Settle sooner. Don't take it all the way to trial. I didn't realize you can use insurance to hire representation because I know just from my own experience, like for example, I'm in a business mastermind and right now there are some women in it who are basically coming up with a class action lawsuit because this person publicly released information. She basically put confidential calls where people were disclosing numbers, ideas, business stuff, and she put it on her podcast for basically the whole world to hear. So now there's this whole legal issue. But then there are people who are like, I can't afford to even do this because I don't have insurance in place or I can't afford an attorney. Yeah, that's why you as a business want to to have this insurance because the cost can be huge again. Like the average lawsuit, according to the Small Business Association, could reach up to a hundred thousand dollars. Damn, are you serious? Yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> oh my god. And, I mean, I was dealing with lawsuits that were in the millions of dollars, but yeah, for a small business, it could easily get into a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, just to settle a case where let's say your attorney doesn't even have to go into court could cost you two, three. $5,000 just to work out a settlement agreement, basically. So you want to have the insurance there as kind of as a cover. It really can give you a lot more protection. Uh, oh, here's another shocking statistics. According to the Small Business Association, again, the same study, they found that basically 
50% of all small businesses have been involved with litigation in each year. Wow. So each year, you have a 50-50 chance of being involved in litigation. That seems high, but that's what they found in their sampling. So wow, it's a high risk. But again, insurance makes it a lot easier as you cover. So I recommend everybody find an insurance broker who understands the different types of insurance coverage you need. Because nowadays, if you're growing and, and you're talking about confidential information, now one of the biggest risks is just protecting people's data. Like, you know, the GDPR and all these. We're gathering people's data, their phone numbers, their emails. If someone hacks that, you could be on the hook. Nightmare. So now there's insurance just for that. I mean, I keep getting emails from like all these companies that are getting breached and they're like, oh, there's this like lawsuit going on. Put in your name and your reference code and you could be part of it. I'm like, sure. But also like, what is going on with my stuff? Why do people know my information? <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, this day and age, it's, it's virtually impossible to prevent yourself from being hacked. I mean, you could do stupid things that will increase the odds of getting hacked. But yeah, you take TransUnion, you take the credit card companies, the big banks, they're all getting hacked. Yeah. And if they can't do it, what can you do? So they have insurance, I'm sure, so they can deal with it. But we also need to have protections there in place. And Definitely. insurance is an easy, easy one. I, I tell people, even if you're going to be a sole proprietor, it, you might be better off not forming an LLC or corporation than just buying the insurance coverage. Like in California, it's $800 a year, even if you make nothing with your business. So insurance could be a, a very good thing. Last one is enlightened thinking. And it's last, but it really in a sense should be first. As I mentioned, most of the law is just getting you to be a good, honest person. And if you have the right mindset, if you really aren't about taking advantage of people, but you're really about loving people, if you really care, if you spend time to understand your vendors, your clients, the people you're dealing with, and earnestly try to resolve disputes with them, I think you're going to prevent most of these lawsuits. Most of the lawsuits happen because someone is doesn't feel like they've been heard. It takes a lot for a person to want to go try to find an attorney to then represent them when they feel like they've been wrong. I mean, here's a shocking statistic. So 63% of people who have reported workplace problems to the government end up being fired. Like, what, what are you doing as an employer? Like, the laws say if an employee finds a problem and reports it to the government, you can't do something to punish them for doing that. You have an employee who felt like there's nothing they could do. It got so bad, they had to go tell the government. And then now you went as far as to fire them. That's how you do end up getting sued and how you give these people a real good lawsuit that will end up costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you could avoid it if you didn't panic, if you just pause and try to figure out what's going on with this person. Yeah. And I found too, if you come about doing business or interacting with people with good intention, it most always will work out okay. And if it's not, you will learn a lesson in the process, which in some scenarios might be a $100,000 bill. But for most cases, it's usually just like, okay, maybe I should watch my language or like interact with people slightly different. Yeah. And it, usually I think the people that are going to be the biggest problems are going to be your sociopaths or your... <laughs> Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, these people who have no problem lying and will just do these really weird mental games on you. Those are people you want to try to screen out and really look at, okay, yeah, how are they treating everybody else? Because, yeah, I mean, I have my clients who have been mistreated by some of these people 
And yeah, they are cheating and messing with all their other vendors, all the other vendors. Everybody else is in the same spot as my client. So do a bit of research. You can find potentially enough information there to to say, don't do business with this person. That's going to be better than, again, paying $10,000 for the best contract ever. Yeah. I can imagine that as someone... I don't know if you've heard or seen scenarios where, for example, now with the era of TikTok, people like have a video go viral and all of a sudden they sell out of X product or whatever business blows up or something happens. And I can only imagine if they went from zero to a hundred, you know, they rapidly scaled, like they're probably in a really tough place because they now, whether they put those legal considerations into place, they might be dealing with a ton of backlash because they didn't either hire people or just when you're growing so rapidly, what the hell do you even do? <laughs> yeah. And that's just it. You're just treading water and you see the income coming and you want to focus on that, focus on the growth, focus on the hiring. And I think you almost need to take that pause, that take that time out, almost like meditate, reflect to see like, do I need to lay a foundation on which I can actually grow on? Otherwise, you could be basically growing a house of cards. One little push in one direction, it'll all come down. And I have seen this. I've seen these rapidly scaling businesses who you know, have a great idea, great product, they're wonderful people. But for example, they had the wrong employee who then brought in the wrong types of customers. One thing led to another, and now that whole business is now defunct. It just collapsed instantly. So you've spoken on like having the wrong employee, the wrong policies, whatever it is. So what is something that someone can do to ensure they're doing something quote unquote right? Like, how do you even know about what way to do that? Is that consulting with someone who's an expert or is it like, do you have a methodology you use or? Yeah, so I have the secure scale method. And really, I think it is part about just educating people to really understand themselves. Because once you understand yourself and you understand who you like working with, and you can think back on who are the clients you really enjoy working with, then you can hone down who you want to do business with. And in fact, coaching programs teach us too. Like they even say, just target your ideal client and it's okay to disqualify a lot of people. Don't feel like you have to, because you're starving, bring in a bunch of bad people. No, it's okay to say no. It's a good thing to turn away people. And a lot of coaches will say that when they've done that, now their business actually explodes. Now they get more business because now people realize, oh, wow, this person's confident. They know what they can deliver on. Really, really, it's worth it to be picky. And when it comes to hiring, I mean, a lot of people do the smart move where they start looking for a person months before they actually need that position. That's field. what I did. Yeah. I mean, I use gig workers. So I just do like, you know, Upwork. So I don't have to worry about like the legalities and stuff like that. And there's like a contract built in place through that platform. But actually, after we spoke and you were like, okay, you need to set the foundation. I was like, okay, I should probably get someone before I actually really need them because it's going to be, I'm going to be in a place where I'm panicking and making wrong decisions if I don't start from a good place and then wean myself into like that busier money coming in crazy place. Yeah, exactly. And oh boy, I love Upwork. I think you find some of the best people there. And then you have all the reviews. They give you so much guidance. So that's definitely a good place to go. And and what you were saying too, I think you're right. Start off with independent contractors. This is what my wife and I did too. When we were started a media production business, we would hire people as independent contractors. You test them out with one little project. If that goes well, you give them a little bit more, give them a little bit more. That's really 
a good little way to go about it. Other people recommend, for example, like interns. Yeah. Try to get people straight out of school or actually they'll still be in school. The kids get education, they get school credit, you get some free labor, you got to do a bit of training and education, but then now you're getting to know them. And if they graduate, boom, now you got someone you can hire. So there's different strategies there. But really, I think the most important thing is you hire for personality and you hire for raw capability. And you don't have to put a premium necessarily on someone's degree or these other factors that at the end of the day might not actually translate into a happy experience working with them. Yeah, I can completely agree with that. And I can see it in this world now, how that's transpiring of people not needing a degree to be an expert in certain things other than like a lawyer or a doctor or something that's really like, you need to be good at what you do and you need the degree in order to move forward. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah, the professions are about the only time where I think the education really becomes useful at this point. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I think you covered such a great, you know, myriad of topics that are really going to help people. They helped me a ton. Like, I mean, now I have more questions, but <laughs> I mean, generally speaking, I'm glad you went over the overview of like how it works and what to look after for people who are just getting started. But one thing I like to do with my guests as we wrap up is I like to ask the question of if you could give advice to your younger self, what would that be? And that could be legal related or it could be completely, you know, something different. But what would you say? For me, it'd be just to niche down earlier. I always had the tendency of I want to be the jack of all trades. And I just still have this tendency of I want to know everything, do everything. But our world has changed so much. And really now yeah. it is about niching and just knowing who you are what you are the best in the world at and just go from there and find the people who really need that one little niche thing you're, you're doing. And now I feel like I'm finally come there, taking my experience with the Fortune 500s, my experience helping small businesses that, you know, scaling is that niche, like helping these businesses that are just going through those growing pains. But it sure took a long time to come to a place of realization that, hey, this is a niche that people need help at. Yeah. And I'm so excited because I'm going to be bothering you all the time because <laughs> I'm going to have so many questions. But that was, I think, a great send-off for people. I also agree with the niching down because in this day and age, you don't need to be... I hate the term, but like you can essentially be a micro-influencer, like only impact up to a thousand people and still make a killing. Like You can make a ton of money and still be in a place of like not having to have millions of people in your, in your wheelhouse. And you're having more fun because you're with your people. Yep. Exactly. Couldn't have, couldn't have said it any better. Just like I love hanging out with you. So yeah, <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> yeah, love to see where, where you continue to grow and, and hope we can stay in touch. Yeah. Same with you. I'm excited to see kind of how, you know, your business kind of blooms and the cool clients you take on and, and all of that. So thank you again for coming on. I'm really, really excited to share this with the world and um, I hope to stay in touch too. Thanks so much, Gabby. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter podcast. Make sure to check out corporatequitter.com for extended content and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things Corporate Quitter and to learn more about how you can leave the nine to five, follow our host Gabby on Instagram or TikTok at she likes to gab. 